you're more responsible now more than ever for which decision you make, the right one or the easy one. Hi guys, thanks for joining us. Today we're on Room 501 podcast. The purpose of the podcast, um, basically to, to show and, and inspire great leaders, showcase the good ones, talk about life stories from different walks of life and how they can transpose into leadership in anything really. And I'm really pleased to say we've got Jamie Peacock. So a quick introduction to Jamie for those who don't know. So Jamie's considered one of the best players of a generation, um, winning every honour in the domestic game of, of rugby league. Played for Leeds Rhinos, Bradford Bulls, Captain GB. Uh, and England. It's safe to say when you start going through Jamie's career in, in numbers, um, yeah, it's hard to disagree that, that you know what you're talking about, Jamie. So 553 appearances, 49 caps for England and GP, um, 11 Super League dream teams, nine Super League titles, four Challenge Cup wins, four World Cup Challenge titles, two World's Best Forward Awards and one NBA. Um, I mean, that's, that's summit. So yeah, <laughs> fair play. Um, more recently, Jamie's been working with organizations um, such as HSBC, NHS, and, and some boys that I know quite well, Infinity Works, um, supporting them with, with leadership skills, coaching, talking through um, his experiences, and how uh, basically look at championship mentality and leadership qualities and how they transfer from sport into pretty much all other industries. Um, so we're going to chat to Jamie today, um, learn a bit about sort of background, what motivates him, some of the learns and stuff that Jamie talks about in his training, and hopefully we'll take some away from it. Um, so kick us off, Jamie, then talk about background. So where did it start? Where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on, Dan, first of all. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on, and uh, hopefully I can share a few stories, you know, from, from the sporting world, uh, and they can move into anybody who wants to listen to them. Um, so for me, yeah, I've... I've was brought up in Leeds, um, lived there most of my life, had a period in Australia, you know, in my uh, early 20s. Um, I probably started, what's my background, started playing rugby as a five-year-old. Um, you know, that's where initially I started playing rugby as a five-year-old. Somebody at school, uh, my primary school, brought in a, um, a note saying the local club Stanley in Leeds wanted players. Um, the note said it was 10, 10p for subs back then to play. So once I convinced my dad that was going to be a wise investment, um, I, I ended up starting playing rugby uh, Stanley from the age of five and uh, went to school schools in and around Leeds as, as I was growing up. Awesome. So what were you like as a child? I mean, were you, did you always have the competitive streak? Were you always champion mentality? I think look, the, the, way, the way I was, I was never a particularly talented rugby player. There was always guys who were, who were a bit bigger and a bit more skillful than me. And I, um, certainly... As when it got older, um, you know, it could be a bit later than others. So rugby became difficult at times for me. But I did, I always think um, my rugby talent as a child never probably stood me out. It was probably more, more, more to do with the mental side of things, which has helped, helped me now. So I'll give you, I'll give a couple of stories uh, about me. Is that, you know, I was always a bit of a self-starter and wanted to go do something. So a good story of doing this is, you know, as a nine-year-old, I wanted to raise money for the famine in Ethiopia. It was like 86, I used to watch John Craven on Newsround. I said to him, all right, well, I, I want to do a fun run. That's a way to raise money. I want to go like run three mile. And she went, oh, well, you can't go run three mile on your own. You, you're only nine. So I went, well, I'll tell you what, I'll work out how far it is around the street. And then I'll run it till I'll run three mile. Then we'll do that instead. So, um, and to me, as a nine-year-old, I just thought it was quite normal. Uh, so I run around the street just over 50 times and raised about £30 uh, for charity. So at the time, 
I look back at that uh, when I you know think about stories as a nine-year-old. I didn't think of it as a nine-year-old, but when you look back now, I think, well, that's not what nine-year-olds normally do. You know, I've got my children now. That's not a kind of normal thing. But I also know I had uh, a, a very stubborn streak in me, um, a really stubborn streak that, you know, once my mum said, you know, you have to wear this particular clothes to go to school. This again was a, as a, a nine-year-old. And I said, look, I ain't doing that. Um, and she went, no, no, you've got to wear that. I said, well, that's fine. I'm not doing that. So I just said, you won't go to school. And I loved school as a kid when I was younger. So I went, fair enough, then I'll stay here all day in my, in my bedroom all day. I'm like, I don't care. And then I stayed there all day. Um, and I wasn't bothered by it, you know. So it's, again, a thing that's just, uh, I think that stubborn nature helped me become a good rugby player. I just think that ability to be a self-start and think for myself was innate to me. And, and, and there's two good kind of examples of that uh, as a child, I think. Yeah, I don't think I could run three mile now. She did well as a nine-year-old, mate. That's solid. <laughs> um, the neighbours are good. They were all cheering me on as I was running around. So, yeah, I mean, I remember doing it. I thought it was a sensitive achievement. And, uh, and I think as well, you know, it probably ties into my... I always want to try and help people. And I think I've done that throughout my career. And I'm now finished playing, you know, in terms of charities and stuff like that. I always... The thing that it incenses me is, is when things aren't fair... And when things aren't right for other people and that people should do something about it. And I think that you could see that was in me from an early age. Now that I spent time thinking about that kind of story. Yeah, 100%. So um, looking at like obviously a child and you mentioned like your mom just then, but who were your biggest influences and, and sort of how did they sort of shape what was your later life? Um, as, a, as a child, I, I would probably say one of my biggest influences would, would have been my dad. You know, he's passed away now, and he run um, he run his own business uh, making uh, false teeth in Bramley uh, for for dentists. And it was he never particularly. Uh, I don't I don't think business acumen was my dad's great skill, but hard work was, and he, he had a very very strong work ethic. Um, and I, I, he'd never he wouldn't talk about it, but I think. You learn more by people's examples, don't you, and the way they do things. So for me, the thing I probably admired about him was, was he had a, a very strong work ethic. You know, he consistently worked 16, 18-hour days. But then the second thing I, I I remember back on my childhood that probably had an influence on me is so he didn't moan about it. He, you know, he, he knew what his thought was, and he knew, I think for me, that knew, right, well, I'm going to have to work really hard to do this to support my family, and I'm not going to moan and whinge about it. And I, I never saw him do that. And for me, that can, those two kind of things rubbed off on me, um, I certainly as a child. And then I do think I've been incredibly fortunate that when I signed at the Bradford Bulls, there were some great professionals at the club who, who, you know, again, had a strong work ethic, wanted to make the most out of the talent they had, weren't perhaps the talent, most talented players in terms of natural sporting ability. But you know what, they'd, they'd outwork people. And, and, it, and I think that theme of being able to, outwork people who, who have talent um, has become something you know I probably known for as a player but probably I still there's no problem I still do it now yeah I've seen it's definitely a theme in like your talks and obviously what you're known for um going on from you mentioned your dad quite a bit and I, and I know a story from from talking with you and obviously seeing you talk um around imposter syndrome and and, and the boss um, a lot of people in leadership and, and sort of management roles uh, tend to struggle with, um, when, especially when they first get into like a leadership or a management position, feel like they shouldn't be in the room or they don't have all the answers all the time. And I think even experienced people kind of feel that weight a bit. 
tell me a bit about um, that story and how that sort of shaped. So yeah, the, the story is around self-belief, you know, I, I never as a kid played for any Leeds or Seaside, Yorkshire sides and England sides. And then as I get to uh, 16 years old, everyone gets signed professional. There's not w- one club interested in signing in me. So I obviously don't value myself as a particularly good player. But I keep playing because I, I love playing. I get to nearly 19 years old. The Bradford Bulls scouts start to come down and, and watch me play, um, watch a few games and speak to most the coach who speaks to my dad. And what they do, they want me to go have a trial training session with the Bradford Bulls first team. Which for me is a great opportunity. You know, it's a chance to change my life forever at 18 and a half years old, become a professional rugby league player. But as you can imagine, I was so nervous about doing it. I, I didn't really value myself as a rugby league player. And I, I had to go train with the guys who I watched on Sky Sports at the weekend, my hero. So I was pretty nervous about doing it. I had a lot of self-doubt. But I took the bus from where I lived in Bramley up to Odsall Stadium. And on this 30-minute journey, I got more and more nervous thinking about what was going to happen. To the point that I got to my bus stop and I bottled it. I stayed on the bus, um, letting the nerves and everything else get the better of me. I uh, missed the opportunity and I stayed on the bus until obviously terminated in Halifax. Couldn't go, couldn't go much further, right? Couldn't go much further. Um, so I've got off the bus and it's 99.5. You can imagine I've got no more bottle. Really embarrassed about what's going to happen. Angry with myself. So the first thing I do, I find a um, payphone, speak to my dad. And I, I speak to my dad about a situation, you know, he was a bit angry, he taught me some new swear words. But uh, he uh, said, you know what, I'll try and get you an opportunity the, the following week. Uh, so catch the bus on. I then waited at the bus stop for probably an hour, and an hour of bus journey, I'm two hours of self-reflection. And I kind of had like a moment of realisation that, look, I have a lot of people who believe in me. Like we have to do in our lives, like my dad did, the coaches did, the scouts did. But the one person who was going to have to believe to take up this opportunity was me. I, I was going to have to back myself. I was going to have to believe in myself. On the bus then, I, this realisation made me realise, I've got to take a leap of faith. And how do you uh, force on a belief? Well, I think a mantra is a good way of doing things, a short, snappy sentence. So my mantra was, time to get off the bus, okay? Real smart. <laughs> but time to get off the bus, because I realised if we're going to change my life forever, I was going to have to get off the bus. I did get back to Bramley. I spoke to my dad. He said, look, we'll give you a chance the following week. All week then at work, I just told myself the same story. Time to get off the bus, time to get off the bus. Um, you know, you're good enough to go train with the Bulls. I get on the bus the following week, keep telling myself, time to get off the bus, time to get off the bus, believe yourself. I get off the bus. Now I get off the bus and I go train with the Bradford Bulls, train with them for about an hour and a half. And I, you can imagine it was a tough, hard training session. But like our biggest fears are, it was nowhere near as bad as I thought it would be, okay? And at the other side of that, I got a professional contract, changed my life forever, but I learned a lesson about self-belief and about how you need to back yourself when you have some self-doubt and that's kind of what champions do i, I think we all fear we all have uh, a little bit of lack of self-belief we all feel a bit of nerves but i think if you're going to nail anything in, in life you have to believe in yourself um have to back yourself and that point then became almost like an anchor for me uh, throughout the rest of my career ever a big game coming up or I take the next level up as a player I come back to this story because I knew I'd done this before I stepped outside my comfort zone back myself and it worked out all right for me and that's what I kind of say to people now is that um, if you're feeling a bit nervous about doing something or a bit outside your comfort zone key is to prepare well and then back yourself when you do it you know really back yourself when you do it and what will normally happen is Firstly, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. 
Secondly, you'll probably get it right and really get it right. Then the third thing is you need to use that then as a reference point, as an anchor to come back to the next time you're in the same kind of situation. And I think the more that you can do that, the more self-belief you have, the more confident and content you can become within yourself. And you'll get to the point that, for example, you were speaking earlier, that you can be in a meeting and you can say, you know what, it's all right, I don't know that, but I'll find out for you. There's nothing wrong in life with doing that. No, no, one, no one's got right all the answers. And anyone who tells you you've got all the answers are bullshitting you, right? So I just think there's like three things you can do to allow you to do that. And it's all right to feel a bit of nerves. It's just about backing yourself and, and having some belief and then using it as a reference point and get to the point where you're quite confident in, in what you do know and what you don't know. And if you don't know something, go find it out. Yeah, completely agree. I think for me as well, it tends to be um, I've, whenever I've been nervous about doing anything or felt felt a bit uneasy, I, I get motivation after I've done an action. So I just take action on something and then get spurred on from the reaction of, of the, the first thing. Because um, I think the procrastination and, and sitting there and worrying about it doesn't, it doesn't help, does it? It does nothing, you know. I was worrying going to increase the performance. You know, worrying just hampers performance. I think you're hundred percent right. It's about executing and having some action on things. And if you know you've got something big coming up that's going to potentially make you nervous in sports, a big game, then you need to work out right. Well, what can I do to combat these nerves? And generally, I think with a lot of things, it's preparation. I think well, a lot of people do get nervous about. Uh, so, for example, presenting or speaking up in a meeting, well, I, I think the best way to try and combat that is to be as prepared as possible, is to go to an extra level. So you come in with it as well prepared as you can, and I think that installs a level of confidence. So, again, it's action. You know, preparation is action. Yeah, I agree. agree. Cool. Um, great story, that, by the way. I love the mantra, get off the bus. I think it's brilliant. Um, and I mean, choice words with your dad is definitely something I think most Yorkshiremen have heard before. <laughs> so yeah, can relate. Um, cool. So I guess with that, then um, talking about like perception and and imposter syndrome and backing yourself, how um, how do you sort of because you mentioned you you were up against it a little bit as a kid, like with with weight and the size of you compared to the other guys in rugby and some some big guys playing rugby. Let's be fair. How do you think then um, you ignore general perception, outside influence, that kind of thing, to then arguably play your best rugby and your best games in the last sort of three years of, of your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I was probably, when I look back on my career, I'm probably proud about the way that I played in the back three years because I felt that I probably got the most out of my potential um, and played as, probably as well as I possibly could. Uh, given you know the circumstances we're in, so th there's a story behind this, and it'll lead into a different one. That, like, I, I my mindset in the back three years of my career was that I was not going to let anybody um, negatively influence what I thought I could achieve, um, which is it's like a no limits mindset. So the, the reason why I got that though, I'll come back to my dad again, is that like 24th of November 2011. My dad got diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer and he got told he only had three months left to live. So he, he rung me, obviously the back of that news, told me told me the, the news and you know, obviously it's devastating to hear that. But what he did say was, he said, you know what, I'm just not, I'm not having that. I'm not having um, some doctor tell me I've only got three months left to live. That ain't happening. I tell you what, it's going to be longer than that. 
So my dad applied that kind of mindset of not being like boxed in by anybody. And he lived for nearly, what, 22 months uh, instead of three months. That's what he decided to do so far. What an inspiration that is because at the backstage of your career, there are an awful lot of external voices that want to decide how well you can possibly play. You know, you have... Uh, uh, players you play against, the coaches you come up against, you have fans, you have journalists, the people who played before at your age, and they all want to define what you can actually achieve by what their expectation is. Now, for me, it's a lot of crap. Um, you, you know, you, you should be able to decide what you want to do, and you just have the mindset and belief to push boundaries as hard as you possibly can, and, and don't let negative, anybody negatively impact on what you think you can go out and achieve. And I think my dad had that, you know, mindset and he applied it to fighting. You know, it's the greatest fight for all is to fight for life. And he applied it there, allowed him to live, not for three months, but close to 22 months. So for me, I had that determination to apply that kind of mindset to the backstage of my career. And I think it's something a lot of people should try and apply to what they do. They should try, well, they should just ignore people who want to place a limit on what they can go out and achieve. And, and I think, some ways of doing that look that's a mindset but what's the process behind doing it? it's just working out what you're good at so i think the process for me behind that was my mindset was right and no limits mentality but the process behind it was i knew what i was good at as when i got to age 34 35 36 37 I, I knew what i could bring to the team and i knew how to get the best out of myself during the week by our train so i kind of applied that framework with a mindset of no limits and that allowed me to I think, fulfil my potential uh, as a player at the backstage of my career. And again, I, I think that's something we can all decide to do. We can all decide to set ourselves the mindset of not having no, no limits and we can all make the effort to try and understand ourselves and what does our best look like and how do we get to our best and what, what do we bring to any particular team or, or organisation. Yeah, I mean, a lot in there to sort of respond to. Um, so... Yeah, like you said, it is, it's a mindset. There's no limits mindset. And I'm glad you talked through a process because the first thing I was going to say is it's great if you can do that, if you can just shut everything out. But most people really struggle with it, especially when, um, I don't know, you, you're probably stepping into a role somebody else has done and you're kind of judged on that performance. You're judged on expectations of other people. We keep going back to like this external expectations and how the imposter syndrome and, and talking about like, yeah, not putting a limit on yourself. but do you think your anchor helps then ignore the limits? Did you, this whole, right, I've just got to take action. I've just got to do something. Do you think that helps negate some of the, the commentary from or outside noise? Yeah, 100% it does. You're absolutely right with that. And I think there is a lot of that within sport, you know, a player stepping into another player's role and what they're going to bring to the team. And I don't think you can get probably anything more visually different than two different players playing in two different positions, but it's certainly the same in business as well. I speak to people about this, you know, they, they try to compare themselves to the person who's been in that role before. And I just think, what are you doing? But they're, they're them, you're you. You need to work out almost why. What, what's your USP? What are the three things? Three is a really powerful number, okay? I think three is you know, one, one of the most powerful numbers you can have. And I would say someone who's doing that, let's say the example you give, stepping into a new role um, for somebody, First, they don't compare yourself to what they did, the next person. And the other thing is work out what the three things that you're going to add value to, to the role that you're in. How are you going to add value in your way, three different ways? Then at the end of each week, just have a look back and just see, well, how have I done it? What are the actions of myself doing it? And that almost 
forms like a feedback loop for yourself because at the beginning of the week you set out the three things you're going to add value and Friday you have a look at, look at it and how you've done it so then you become more confident in your own performance and then when you become more confident in your own performance and you can form like a, an you know just a one person feedback loop for yourself you have to rely less and less on, on, on kind of outside noise uh, you know the right people are to listen to but then it helps you block out the people who, who are just essentially noise, you know, and you don't need to listen to it if you can do that. Yeah. I think, yeah, knowing your value, yeah? Like knowing yeah. what you can bring definitely will create confidence. Um, on the goals thing, going off on a bit of a tangent here, on the goal stuff you mentioned about setting goals, reviewing those at the end of the week, do you think then it's better to set shorter goals like you know that are achievable or that will build that confidence or stretching targets where you're forever reaching, but might not achieve them. I think it's a mix. I think the combination of the two is probably most powerful. I think having a week to week goal of what, what's actually achievable. And then I think having some long-term aims about where you, where you need to get to or where you would like to get to. I think they're the key. I think the mix of the two, I, I think if you just have a long-term aim, well, that's a bit of a dream. And, it, and if you just have, short-term aims where you can just become too short-sighted with what's happening in front of you you don't actually generally progress anywhere i think the short-term goals are just about understanding um what you achieve each week and realizing what you can do and how you how you add value and understanding that i mean one of the most difficult questions i ask people uh, in in mentoring is what you know what the three things you're good at and you should see people squirm when you're people to say or, or for people to answer with that, and I think it's something that people should get into that reflection. And if you don't know, you wind up um, write down yourself. Okay, three things you think you you, where you you you're good at, or you add value. Then ask three people that you trust and see if they align together. Yeah, that's a good way of doing it. I like that. Um, and you're right. I think a lot of people struggle with identifying what they're good at. Some people feel quite embarrassed by saying I'm good at this thing, or um, it's a lot easier to be self-deprecating i think than than it is positive about your abilities it is right but this is the thing okay um no one gets employed at a place for what they can't do you know no one, no one goes through an interview process and goes well we'll hire them because they can't do these three things do they no one no one does that but then we always look at what we can't do uh which is good you know you need to look at some areas that you need to improve without a doubt okay but that can't be your sole focus in life just keep continue looking at things that you you can't do. Yeah, you get pretty miserable. But you're right, nobody eyes you on the things that you can't do, so stop worrying about it. <laughs> but yeah, I like that, that's good. Um, so that's the mindset and talking about leadership mindset and, and how you sort of quieten down the noise. I guess then putting it into action, something I read about um, which I really liked was um, the the things you can control. You highlighted two sort of areas of your game that that you could control and then took some pretty radical action on on getting up and running when nobody else would so yeah talk everyone through what those things were how you identified them what you did yeah you see look i just think um this is just about giving extra which boils down to hard work but i i think um i think in life we can, we can i think most successful people have an extra mile yeah, they just try to go a little bit above and beyond uh what they were asked to do and i, I kind of because I was limited in terms of natural talent as a rugby league player, I just tried, I wanted to get to the top of that ambition, but I needed to work out some ways that I was able to do that. And what I realised to me was there's a couple of uh, 
you know, key components with being a, a really good rugby league player, I've, a, you know, um, being physically fit, um, having that, you know, good endurance base. And then the other one is just being mentally tough, the ability to push yourself and be resilient when things are difficult, because rugby league is one of them games where things are consistently physically difficult to do. So for me, this meant, okay, well, how can I get in front of other people? So Christmas Day morning 2000, I, I decided to go out for a long distance run because for me, I thought every other player I play against is that well, I'm up in their Christmas presents and I'm out here getting fitter than you, which me, which will mean, right, um, you might have a bit more natural talent than me, but in the back 20 minutes of the game, when everyone's fatigued, I'm not going to be as fatigued as you. So that means I'm going to think that a bit clearer than you. So it means when there's any opportunities, I'm going to be able to take them because I'm, I'm fitter and I'm thinking quicker. So in the end, I'll win in the end. So this became my kind of big thing, doing that, going on the, this extra mile, trying to become uh, mentally tougher and uh, fitter. And you know, I, I, do, I love running now. And when I go running now, I've got music on and, and um, you know, podcasts and what have you. But when I run back then, I refused to use any music because I thought music's just making this easier. I'm not using any music to do this. Uh, when, I, when I'm going out there, I want, I want this to be as difficult as it can possibly be. And I want to get, you know, there's a saying in sport, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I want it to be like that. And for me, uh, the more I did that, the more success I got off the back of it. And, and the fitter I became, the more mentally tougher I became. And just by that practice of doing it. And I just think it's one of these things that, first, again, if you can identify an area where you, you think will have the biggest impact, then you should go do that and probably try to go above the extra mile. Now, in today's age, I'm, I'm not saying the extra mile is um, turning up at five in the morning and working till 11 o'clock at night because that's just counterproductive. Um, it's just what you'll end up dealing, the work you'll end up sending out won't be the extra mile, it'll be substandard. I think it's about working a smart way how to do things and a smart way where you can have the biggest impact by doing that little bit extra. And I think the best in life work that out in terms of what's going to have the biggest impact in terms of success for their role. For me as a rugby league player, it was being fitter and mentally tougher, which meant running and going up doing extra training all the time. But for somebody else in a different role, it could be something completely different. It, you can't get bogged down in the idea that extra mile means doing 18 hour days. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, Doing more work doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the right work. Um, cool, okay. So, I mean, most people are going to think you're a bit mad, like turning the music off and making it more difficult than the run already is. But, but it, my thought was, right, I'd rather it be difficult now, okay? Uh, I'm finding it really difficult because it would be easier in a game then. Um, and it would be a lot easier for me in a game because, um, so for me, I was trying to condition myself um, to be, through my training, to make the game as easy as possible or to allow me to be successful in a game. Awesome. Okay. Um, and, I, and I think I read somewhere as well about like looking at your training. So that kind of transpires in, into what you were doing with training and definitely something I see um, in business or when I've, I've been working with like, junior recruiters and stuff coming through and been training those guys is you can set a task and then people interpret that task rather differently for example i don't know run your 400 meters um and you've definitely experienced that and it's something you talk about a bit do you want to yeah i just think yeah for me another way i thought i could get ahead as a player was having a good attitude so good attitude basically meant this is a player uh, in rugby league, you spend a lot of time running fitness drills and, and um, you know, sprinting to certain corners. Right, you've got to sprint 100 metres to that corner. We've got 
three 20 meter shuttles here, but it's always to the corner, always to the line. And the, probably the most difficult thing we ever used to do was run 400 meters and we'd do them, uh, if someone's run a 400 meters, you know, to sprint all the way through the finish line, it's just takes, it takes a good attitude to do that. And I remember one particular training session we're doing this and just people, blokes are pulling up short, I've moved, blokes pulled up short anyway, you know, one meter here, two meter here, five minutes there, but we're running 400 meters. And I always made it an effort for me to push all the way through to any cone that I, I ever did because the drill didn't finish, you know, one metre short or 30 centimetres short. It finished past the cone. That's where the drill finishes. It's about giving 100%. Um, and I used to do this uh, and I could see it was a really visible way that I felt I could get a difference over people because I remember one particular race, I was probably behind three people going into the last 20 metres and they all slowed down. Where I just push through and get through to the finish line and end up beating them because they're happy sprinting 396 meters instead of 400 meters. And for me, the best players I played alongside were the guys who would consistently do that, would consistently make sure you sprint all the way through. And I think the best people in life have that work ethic. They're not happy with um, you know 99% or 98%. They want to finish a job and they want to do it properly. They want to have a good attitude. To, to what they're doing and, I, and for me what's that look like um, in terms of outside sport the, the best example I could probably give of this would be in uh, when I was 33 uh, I left school at 16 uh, when I was 33 I got injured and I um, wanted to get on a master's degree master's course in sports business administration I knew I was clever enough to do it but it's the, just the writing the writing and, and the style of writing so my concepts and my ability to understand her idea was, you know, as good as anybody in the class, but it was just my um, avid referencing. So for me, because my concepts and ideas were, were really good, you know, I could have happily had like six days instead of that. But I thought, you know what, the extra mile, and they had good attitude for me, or even the extra mile, is making sure I have a reference properly and spend that extra effort doing it 100%, because that'll take me maybe from a 66 to a 72. And again, that's just a, a real way of how you can apply it in any, any walk of life. Um, so, yeah, there are two things which um, can make you successful. And probably the thing that's maybe runs through everything that I spoke about so far, it's just, you know what, it's just a decision. Okay. So I think our success in life is very often based on the decisions we make. And it's, I think... In most decisions we have, we have a crossroads, and you can take the right decision or the easy decision. So the easy decision is sprinting 400 meters. It's a slope at 390 meters. That's the easy one. The right one's sprint all the way through. Easy decision Christmas Day morning is to get up and open your Christmas present. The right one's squat and go for a 10k run. And I think consistently we're presented with them decisions every day. And I think having lockdown has magnified those for people because you're working at home, so you're more responsible now more than ever for which decision you make, the right one or the easy one, because you're not having to go into work every day and be held accountable by people or by peer pressure of everybody. It's how you behave yourself. And the people who survive, well, the people not who don't survive in lockdown, who thrive in lockdown, are the ones who make the uh, right decision, not the easy one. And they consistently do that more than other people. And what I say is, I don't not met one person yet who consistently makes the right decision every single time. But I think the champions in life do it far more often than not. Yeah, again, loads to take in there. Really, really good stuff. What I, I took from it was the only thing that scares Jamie Peacock is Harvard referencing. Uh, <laughs> well, you've got that, mate. It did scare the life out of me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could do uni again. I was asked some graft. How did you find it going back to uni after such a like 
you, you're a celebrity, yeah? You've, you've achieved everything in rugby and then going back to do a degree. It was just, it, it was just, um, I was fortunate probably that rugby league, to be successful at rugby league has given me some characteristics that allow me to go in there and try to be successful. Uh, I, me and Kevin Sinfield were in there, uh, and Phil Daly, uh, another member of staff at the Leeds Rhinos, and we were, you know, balancing full-time jobs, three kids at home. And I'd be forever frustrated by the lack of effort by the full-time students. So, like, we'd have a presentation. Uh, we had to do a presentation on marketing. A couple of students are, like, doing this last night, stayed up all night, the night before trying to do it, whereas myself and Kevin, we, we've, we've had it done ready 10 days before and ready to go practice a couple of times ready. I just think I was just used to shake my head at some of these guys just thinking, what are you doing? You know? I think that's a life experience thing. I'm pretty confident most people students eat pizza and do it the night before <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean just what a, unless they learn though what a waste that is you know unless someone points it out to them and say you know what we can all but we all have the right times to party in our life and do and you know have a good time and a few beers and all that but we're, probably when you're presenting on a uh, wednesday night maybe just stay in for two or three days and get it done <laughs> yeah no fair and it, like i said it dictates a longer time I've, I've got um a girl who finished a degree recently works for us who I've never seen a student work as hard. She right. undoubtedly like got her first, but um, literally lived in libraries, swatted, and then worked here throughout doing a degree as well. So yeah, it, it can be done. I think um, having that motivation and obviously doing it is is far easier said than, than done, especially when there's like, we're talking about distractions again. There's loads of distractions in there. There's the beers, there's your mates and all the rest of it. And it's same in... Um, everyday work like there's always a beer at the end of the day you might have something you need to get finished but i guess it's how bad you want it is the bottom of it and um you talked about before jumping back a little bit but you're talking about that about 400 meters and about it being a mindset thing and it's something that's definitely coming through in what you're talking about is mentality mantras all that sort of stuff um maybe sort of remember about um something eddie Izzard said i think eddie Izzard like ran back-to-back marathons he was absolutely killing it um and he said that most people, um, it's mental toughness that lets most people down in success or achieving anything great or, or, or out of the norm. Um, and no more so when he was doing these marathons, he realized it in that his mind gave up before his body did. And provided he could sort of overwrite this thought of, I'm going to stop, it's hurting, I can't do anymore. He, he managed to finish the, the races that he was doing. Um, and that's definitely something that I kind of get aligns with your approach as well, is, is if you can get your mind right, the rest kind of falls into into place. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. He's at there. And I do think it was incredible what he did, but he had an innate understanding that it's your mind that's going to decide whether you do something or not. I think Henry Ford said something like that, didn't it, where if you decide to do something or not, you're you, you know, probably, probably right. And I just think as a player, um, bar an injury, if you look at your best performances and your worst performances, it's very rarely the state of your body, it's the top two inches that decide uh, the level of performance in sport. So why would it not be the same in business and outside that? And I, I think one of the core skills in life is just to have some resilience, that ability to um, master the voice inside you when thing, things are difficult and just to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think most of the great human achievements have been done by people who, who push their bodies way beyond what anybody expects them to do. And I, I think if I'm wrong, I might be wrong here, but Roger Bannister, I think he was quoted 
been the five, 10 years before that it was scientifically impossible for a human being to run under a four minute mile. And well, that just shows you, doesn't it? It's just, it's all about the mind. And, and I, I just think, I think the best way to shape stuff like that, you know, what's a practical thing like this? I just think it's getting yourself into positions where you know you're gonna have to push yourself and test yourself. Like me in a group recently, there's a guy called David Goggins. Um, you know, he's an ex-Navy um, SEAL, if I get this right, you know, you're checking your, you, you know him, you know, and he, he pushed himself to extremes. And he's got a challenge uh, to run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. He does it every year. Me and another group jumped on it. And I think it's just, just good to get yourself into that place where having run 36 miles, you have to get up at quarter to four in the morning. It's pissing it down in rain outside. And you've got to get out and you've got to run because I think that allows you to realise you, you can control the mind. The voice doesn't control you. And I think then that'll help you in other areas of your life. And it allows you to develop a hard edge. So, I mean thing for me uh, around that is that ability to do that I mean my term on that was the hurt locker I always think it's when you're when you're doing something difficult and you start to get those voices telling you yeah, you can't do this that's the hurt locker and I think the best best in sport and business enjoy that challenge and enjoy being able to push themselves hard yeah that's cool um and yeah I've definitely heard of David Goggins not a chance I'm trying to do those uh, <laughs> Those miles there. I'll be in the group next year, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah, no chance. Um, <laughs> on uh, you, you seem really um, self-aware, and I think again, like you, you know what your strengths are. You, you quite early on, um, you said oh, I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the best rugby player, but I could control these things. That sort of self-awareness, I know it's something you work with a bunch of companies and, and business leaders in all sort of shapes on. Um, and there's this notion of no number sevens. What, what's all that about? So I'm, I'm really open to, to ideas, and this is a great idea. I took from a book by uh, Daniel Pink. Uh, Daniel Pink's a great author. I love following him. I think it was in, he's got a couple of books out, and it might have been in the one called When, which is about timing uh, or to sell. And basically, um, it came from the sevens, just the, just the thing that everybody hides behind. You know, if you ask anybody to rate themselves out of 10, most people will generally put seven in a number of different areas. Now, if you're going to try and grow anything and you just put sevens, well, you're never going to get anywhere. I think if you put six, well, it means you're going to have to change and challenge yourself. And I think eight means that's a skill. So you're beginning to identify and understand uh, what your strengths are as a, as a person. I think it's just averageness is seven. So the aim, the aim with my course and why I took that idea was I thought I get people to do that at the start of the course who rate themselves out of 10. When you start seeing sevens, you just think, well, you need more than this. You need to be a bit more honest yourself. And taking that seven out uh, makes people think a little bit deeper about what they're actually good at and where are the areas uh, that they need to improve. And I think you're 100% right um, about self-awareness is that I think that ability to understand what your strengths are and the areas you need to improve are, are keys to just continually trying to improve. I think, again, I ask this, um, you know, I think in a lot of businesses know what their values are as a business. Right? If you ask the person what their values are, they struggle, right? So if, if you don't know your values as a person, how, how can you stand for anything? Because the business has values because they want to stand for something okay? and they want to align people to what they stand for. But a lot of people in life have, have no idea what their values are. Well, I would find it hard to define what their values are, not what they're good at, what their values are. Um, and then if you can't, don't stand for everything, you'll fall for everything. You know, it's one of those. So for me, 
I think that's the key with uh, self-awareness, not only finding out what you're good at doing in terms of technically or personality-wise, but just what, what are your values as a person trying to work those out. Cool. That leads me quite nicely on too. So um, looking at like the why, something I've been looking at recent um, in our teams internal is, is working out individuals' whys, what makes them tick, what makes them get up, how they make decisions, what's, what drives it. Um, and that relates directly back to self-awareness, how you make decisions, your values, all that sort of stuff. So what's your why? Um, it's a good question. I'll tell a story about the importance of, of why. Is that if you look at Super League, and then everything in Super League is based around parity. So based around everyone's got to have the same. You know, there can only be so many players. You play the same rules. You're only allowed to spend the same same amount of money. And we all try and win the same thing. So what the difference has to be has to be the why. And I believe identifying a good why is the reason why reason why we mean it, I was involved in many teams that won trophies now for me the most powerful why is about people so I would have put this is that a story I got told about Alex Ferguson through someone called Damien Hughes who's a great guy was that Alex Ferguson was once talking to uh, the golden generation um, at, you know David Beckham Paul Scholes and he told him a story about some bricklayers and he says, three bricklayers got asked, you know, why do you come to work? What's your why? So the first bricklayer went, well, I come to work because I'm going to get paid £10 an hour. That's me, £10 an hour, doing my job. So his, his why was money. The second bricklayer, they asked him and says, well, that's what I learned to do. You know, that's my job. That's my skill in life. That's why I do it. So it was a vocation. He asked the third bricklayer, why do you come uh, and lay bricks every day? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, um, in 30 years' time, I'm going to bring my children back here and show them that I helped build this magnificent cathedral. So that's the reason why I come to work every day, because I want to build a magnificent cathedral that my family can see. So then Alex Ferguson said to the uh, Man United players, if you turn up because uh, you want to earn 50 grand a week, that's great. Everybody else in the premiership is doing that. If you turn up and you, just because you want to be a footballer, that's good and all, but everybody else is just doing that as well. But if you want to come and turn up because you want to make Manchester United the greatest club of all time and a cathedral and football and you can bring your children back in and help so you establish that, well, then we're on. We're going to win some things here. And I think that ability for him to understand the purpose of the why it's a higher purpose. And I think in any team or any organisation, you need to find a higher purpose that's above just doing your job. And it's above a financial reward What's the difference you can make along that higher purpose? So my wife, as a purpose, you know, I, I want to provide for my family. Uh, I want my family to have, have a, a better start in life than I had. Um, my second one is that I want to do a good job. You know, I really want to do a good job. Whenever I do something, I want to do a good job in, in whatever I do. I've probably, what's the third thing? I want to help people. I really think I enjoy helping people, and that's one of my wives as well. So I'd say they're the three wives for me. Um, but I say the why as a team would be you've got to connect into that higher purpose and that's something we consistently did at Bradford and consistently did at Leeds and the amount of times you see a team win a trophy because a coach is leaving or a group of players are leaving that's about the why they're not just playing to win the trophy they're not playing for the bonuses they're playing for the why of that person the interpersonal connections you see that a lot like when a when a manager leaves and the, like the team start to follow or um, the disband because yeah you said they bought they bought into that person and that why and that vision. Um, something then that goes with that I guess um, is communicating it 
So as a leader, it's great having a why and you knowing your why, but communicating it and getting other people who are like-minded to buy into your vision is really important because obviously if they don't, you have very little followership and, and you technically don't have a team. How would you or what would you suggest to leaders um, to consider or how do you go about conveying your, your why to, to people that you work with? I think, look, I think uh, leadership for me, right, boils down to the, these three things. It's about having deeper relationship. It's about people trusting you. And it's about having good communication. They're the three things. You know, there's other things in and around it. But if you're good at those three things, or if your team believe they've got deep relationships with them, you have good communication with them, and they trust you, then you'll have a successful team. And the way that you can do that is kind of through your behaviours, the leadership behaviours, defining who you are. So the way to have a deep relationship is just make an effort to know your team, care about people, make sure you understand people, make that effort to spend a little bit longer to people, just make the effort to listen to people. And I think, again, that boils down to communication. The way to get your team to trust you is just have some integrity, some authenticity in what you do, be who you are, don't be someone you're not trying to be, and tell people the truth when you can and when it's the right way to do things. And I think by doing that, you get people to buy into what you want to do. And then the way to get people on board with a purpose is great. I think you need an, an analogy or a story. Uh, I think as human beings, we, we align better to analogy. I think it's said that like 40% of the way we talk is analogies. So first of all, you need to find an analogy that excites people, involve them with it. And then for me, it's an everyday thing. I don't think you can tell a Churchillian speech and come back to it three months later and wonder why people are connected to the why. You've got to then align people's behaviours each day to it and then speak to them each day about that and have that good communication in and around that. So for me, I think if you've got deep relationships by knowing your team, being who you are and having some integrity creates your trust, and then you have good communication skills in terms of an everyday and a story, then that'll allow you to get people to um, buy into a why and a high purpose. Yeah, I think most of the people that, I've worked with that have inspired me in some way or had me buy into a vision were definitely good storytellers. So I can hundred percent vouch for that. It was, it was, I was tied into our story. And I think if you can perfect that or start to tell more stories and learn what makes a good one in terms of the structure of it, the size of it, why people buy in, then you're onto a winner because you can get people to buy into what you're trying to do. So yeah. The two of the best coach, you're hundred percent right there, Dan. The two of the best coaches I've ever worked with, uh, you know, as a player, as a member of staff would be Brian McDermott and Wayne Bennett. And they're the best two storytelling coaches. That's why, because they can get the connection, the emotional connection with people. They know what words to use and it's practiced over and over again. So they can, they have that ability to win over people because, you know, playing rugby is hard. You've got, you, You've got, you've got to pay the price in every game you play, so you need to connect to that kind of emotional spirit to get the best out of most players. And the ability to storytell allows us to do that. Jamie, it's been a pleasure. I think you've definitely covered a lot there in terms of wise, extra miles, approach to training, mentality, looking at how to um, get off the bus. Uh, so there's definitely a lot in. Um, been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk to me and, and share your thoughts with, with the guy. Thank Thanks, you. Dan. It's been a pleasure being on. You've asked some great questions. So, yeah, it's, it's easy to get good answers when you get good, good, good questions. I'll tell you that. Thank you. Cheers, Jamie. Thanks, mate.